0: You're in the Waterloop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water-efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house, and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code Waterloop at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Order today and start saving water and money with High Sierra. Lip, water, lip, water, lip. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis, joined by Luke Runyon, reporter at KUNC in Colorado. He also produces stories focused on water for a, a network of NPR stations throughout the Colorado River Basin. Luke, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I uh, I have a long list of questions for you because I'm just fascinated by water out west, and you've covered like a really wide range of topics out there. Um, for people that might not be as familiar with the Colorado River Basin, could you describe it?
1: Sure. So the Colorado River Watershed is made up by seven U.S. states: Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, New Mexico, Nevada, Arizona, California. And then uh, the country of Mexico also is part of the watershed. Um, So each of those states, a portion of them is within the Colorado River watershed. And um, the river itself is about 1400 miles long, starts high up in Rocky Mountain National Park um, that's its main stem and it flows all the way down through Colorado, through Western Colorado, down through Utah where it's met with the Green River, which is one of its main tributaries. that starts up in Wyoming and snakes through the canyons of Utah. Um, those two rivers meet in Canyonlands National Park and then it flows down uh, through Utah eventually ends up in Lake Powell, one of its main reservoirs down in southern Arizona, or northern, Arizona, Southern Utah. And then from there, it goes into the Grand Canyon, carved the Grand Canyon.
0: It it, it did some nice work there. You got to get it.
1: It (laughs) did a lot of work over millions of years. Um, And then from there, it empties into Lake Mead, which is the largest man-made lake in the country, um, impounded by Hoover Dam, pretty iconic infrastructure. Uh, from there, it flows downward and creates the border between California and Arizona um, and be, kind of becomes a very regulated river, which it's almost like a series of stacked reservoirs. You just have a series of dams um, and the river starts to receive some really heavy diversion at that point as well. Mm. Um And then from there, it flows until it hits uh, a few dams way down on the lower end of the river where it is diverted to um, irrigate farm fields in southern Arizona in the Imperial Valley of California. And then eventually is dammed one last time at the border between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, where its flow is almost entirely diverted for Mexican agriculture and Mexican municipalities. And then from there, the last hundred miles of the river is actually dry. Mm. Um, There's a few areas where there's some restoration work to bring water back, but for the most part, we use every drop of the Colorado River um, for agriculture, for municipal use, for industrial use. Um, And that's really kind of the the place where you get to see the story of the Colorado river is in its Delta Mm. because really it's unlike a lot of other rivers in the United States where it doesn't reach the ocean. It doesn't do what a lot of rivers are meant to do. And for millions of years, it did reach the ocean. And then we came along and created this massive infrastructure in the desert to allow life to be possible. Um, And so you really see that on display in that last hundred miles of wow, this is a river that works really hard. And we've asked a lot of it um, in order to make yeah to make life possible in the American West.
0: Yeah. And one of your stories, you had the chance, I think, to fly over that Delta region, right? To take a flight. Uh, and it just must have been amazing to see that that story right to see what has happened to this wild river that's been overdrawn right and that doesn't get to finish its journey really to the ocean um what was that like to to have that view
1: yeah so last year um i guess it was late 2018 i partnered with a group called lighthawk which is a nonprofit organization and they partner with journalists and policymakers and environmentalists to uh, get them into the air in these tiny airplanes and fly them over areas of interest. And so uh, they reached out to me and asked if I wanted to do a series of flights following the Colorado River all the way down, uh, starting up in the headwaters and doing sort of legs. So we didn't fly it all at once. We did, um, I think, four separate flights from starting in the headwaters and going all the way down into the Delta. And I think it was incredible. Um to see it from that perspective and to get a, a lay of the land like you wouldn't get if you were just flying in a commercial airplane. I mean we were able to get low and look at some of the the landscape, and it's just these incredibly beautiful landscapes.
0: and yeah, I so mean, different. I've, I've flown over that part of the west in a commercial flight, and it's still stunning from from you know that high up. So it must be just spectacular to be, like you said, very low and, and slow.
1: Yeah, and there's such a diversity of landscapes too. I mean, you're starting in snowy, rocky mountain peaks, and pretty soon it transitions into the Colorado Plateau where you have these canyons, these beautiful um, you know, really intricate Canyon land, uh, landscapes. And then from there you get down and flying over the grand Canyon is just, mm. you know, pretty incredible experience. Um, and then once you get down from there, you, you really get a sense of this infrastructure that we've put in place in order to, to, you know, feed Los Angeles and feed Phoenix and Tucson and feed these, uh, farm fields with water. And then flying over the Delta was, uh, pretty staggering experience i mean it's 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 hard to not feel sad mm-hmm. when you fly over that area because you can picture what it would have looked like you know just 150 years ago mm-hmm. um it would have been this massive estuary where this freshwater desert river is meeting the ocean and, you know, these huge cattail reeds and it would have been this haven for wildlife. Yeah. And there's a huge portion of the Delta now that is dead. That's um, just a massive salt flat um, where there, the tide comes in on the ocean, but there's no freshwater to meet it. And it just feels like, how did we let that happen? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people who are doing really great work on the ground to try and make some of that connection come back. But it's hard to see with the future demands on the river and climate change playing a huge role in lessening the flow of the river, how the, the end of the Colorado River will ever look like it did before. Maybe long after we're gone, um, (laughs) the Delta will look um, like some semblance of its former
0: self. Sure. I remember I actually saw a presentation on this and I saw you had a story on that pulse flow, right? Mm -hmm. Where they were able to have, you can explain it better than I, but they were able to have some water flow where it hadn't flowed before. And the people of the community, it was just like this spontaneous celebration and party. Uh, You know, the water returned and then the people returned to the water and. Could you describe what happened with that?
1: Yeah, so that happened in 2014. And it was actually the result of several years of negotiation between the U.S. and Mexico that allowed that pulse flow to even be possible. Um, Part of it was related actually to um, some earthquakes that happened in Mexico in 2009. So there was a, a massive earthquake. It upended a lot of irrigation infrastructure in Mexico. And so Mexico wasn't able to use its entire Colorado River allocation. And because it was an emergency, Mexico came to the United States and said, hey, we would like to, to store our allocation in American reservoirs. Would you be OK with that? Hmm. Um, and the U.S. and the entire Colorado River Basin was in this really horrible drought. And so they said, Yes. Well, you know, we want to we want to boost the, the reservoir levels in Lake Mead. And so, yes, you can store your water in there. And so then several years later, after Mexico had built rebuilt its irrigation infrastructure, um, some environmentalists had come to the table, some scientists and said, we would really like to see some of that stored water be used for an experiment. Mm. Um, what would it look like if we simulated some sort of a spring flood in the Delta in an area that hadn't really seen water in a long time? And both governments agreed. Um, they got some funding to do scientific research in that area during the pulse flow. And so it was years of negotiation. And then the pulse flow ended up actually only lasting for, you know, about eight weeks. Mm. Um, where the the floodgates opened at that last dam on the u s Mexico border, and a, and a, you know, a tens of thousands of acre feet of water flowed through those um, floodgates. And, yeah, it became this really beautiful human moment where some of these communities in Mexico used to be uh, fishing communities and used to rely on the river um, for their local economies. Um, I mean, there used to be like steamboats that would go up from (laughs) from, really, yeah. Um, from the Pacific or yeah, from the Pacific up into like Yuma, Arizona. Um, that's how big the Colorado river used to be in that area. Um, Mm. and now it's so controlled that it's hard to ever imagine that. But really, I think for, those communities in Mexico, it was a really, it was a cultural moment where it was like, yes, this, this friend of ours who we haven't seen in a long time has returned and we're able to see this person. And I think it it ignited um, those communities to maybe push harder for water to be left in the river. um, Which I think is a really cool aspect of the pulse flow was that it created this, Um, kind of social movement in some of those Mexican communities to, to do that.
0: But there's no, there's no plans right now to repeat that. I mean, it came from kind of an emergency situation, a unique situation with the earthquake and needing to hold water somewhere, but that's not likely to be repeated in large part because there's so much demand, right?
1: Yeah, not, not in the same way, but what's happened after, I think the pulse flow because it embedded itself in people's imaginations there started to be this more serious conversation about, all right, what what can we do with restoration efforts in the Colorado River Delta? Mm-hmm. And since then, there have been other agreements between the U.S. and Mexico allocating a certain amount of water for the environment in the Delta. Um, and so these are more localized efforts. It's not as flashy as <laughs> doing a big pulse flow where you get people coming out and these festivals start up. But there is still work on the ground that's going on there. And what they're doing is diverting some water through irrigation infrastructure and then putting it in dry areas of the riverbed Um, and creating these. It's almost easy to think of them as parks um, where there are still dry stretches of the Colorado River in the Delta But there are areas where there is some water returning, Mm. and they're able to use the irrigation infrastructure to release water into those areas. Um, And they're starting to see wildlife return to some of those areas. Mm. We went to a couple restoration sites. One had... Beavers that have returned they have coyotes and tons of birds and cottonwood groves um, but it's not like a connected river system. Right. it's more of this kind of disconnected series of parks all along the all along the riverbed.
0: One of the things I'm super interested in that's been in the news a lot for the past bunch of months past year probably longer for you but really national news is kind of the the agreement among the states federal government on the whole allocations, right? And uh, it's obviously super politically charged and everybody's <clears throat> jockeying for their portion. You've got still tremendous growth happening across the Southwest and all those cities, uh, Vegas and Phoenix, you know, just continue to, to boom. Um, so could you give an overview of, of what that plan is, what that agreement is and kind of uh, where it landed?
1: Sure. Yeah. Governance of the Colorado River is not an easy thing to explain in just a couple (laughs) minutes, but take all the time you need. Yeah. I'll do my best. Um, So it's actually really helpful to understand that there isn't one entity that is in control of the Colorado River. There are a series of agreements and laws that have been put in place over, you know, almost a century now that govern the Colorado River. It started with the Colorado River Compact back in 1922, where you had all of the states come together um, to basically who gets what amount of water. And there was lots of negotiation that went into that particular plan. Herbert Hoover was involved. And they finally came to an agreement. And then since then, all of these agreements have sort of built off of that original 1922 compact. And there have been other, you know, treaties with Mexico, there have been, you know, acts of Congress that have been built into what people call the law of the river. Mm. And so it's not like you have the Colorado River Commission that just, you know, handles all of the, the day to day business on the river. What you have is bunch of different people and agencies and governments that rely on the Colorado River and have um, have their allocations spelled out in these agreements. Mm. And so the latest was these series of agreements called the Drought Contingency Plan. Mm. And that was what was signed last year, a big agreement between all of the states, Mexico and the U.S. federal government. And basically what they did is the river itself is split into two basins. So you have an upper basin and you have a lower basin and the lower basin agreement was probably the tougher of the two. And it spelled out a series of cutbacks in water deliveries to California, Nevada, Arizona, and Mexico as the level of Lake Mead drops. Mm. So As drought injures the Colorado River, hurts these reservoirs, um, people are going to have to take less and less water from it. Sounds pretty intuitive, but the whole river system is over allocated. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't an orderly series of cutbacks to water deliveries. And you have a lot of people who who rely on this water for their livelihoods, for municipal growth, for agriculture, and so they needed this series of cutbacks. So, like, if Lake Mead drops to this certain level, these users have to use less. If it drops to this level, these users needed to use less, and then you know, kind of goes on in that that series to like an extremely low level of Lake Mead. Like, looking at some of the levels that they had, it's like. The reservoir would have to drop quite a bit for some of these users to stop uh, having to take their allocations. So that was the heart of the lower basin plan. The upper basin plan, um, it didn't have to go nearly as drastic Mm -hmm. because in the lower basin, it's overprescribed. There are way more uses of water in the lower basin than there is water to actually supply them. And so they're having this situation where they have to cut back
0: a lot. Where's the the, upper basin? where where would you say yeah. the cutoff is between lower and upper basin? You mean like the, the divide? Where does it become the upper? Where does it become the lower? It's just below Lake Powell gotcha. in northern Arizona. Gotcha. I know so, where that is.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yes. So that's the in the compact, the 1922 compact, it spelled out that as a delivery point. Mm-hmm. So the upper basin has to deliver a certain amount of water to the lower basin at that delivery point. And that's what demarcates the two basins. I mean,
0: I, I, I mean, and that Lake Powell has just seen that incredible drop in uh, in its you know, how, how much water it has. Also, you've got the white walls exposed and it's just been really, really crazy. I mean, I think I was there kayaking and camping in like 2002 or 2003. And then even to see the pictures now, it's just like stunning what's happened in that amount of time.
1: Yeah. Both reservoirs have taken a lot of hits over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just been one prolonged drought after another, um, and really, these yeah, these drought contingency plans are meant to be somewhat of a response to this long term drought in the basin.
0: is it um, is it I mean there' so there's a drought going on, and that's certainly a huge factor, but you have the growth happening also, right? So more water coming out at the same time there's less water going in. I mean, it's getting squeezed at both ends. is that fair?
1: Not necessarily. Okay. so um, there there are definitely new demands on the river but in a lot of um municipalities in the west you've seen this phenomenon that's called decoupling so basically cities have been able to grow while using the same amount of water and in some cases actually using less water on average Um, and so there are definitely new demands Mm. but overall you know like the upper basin Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, New Mexico—those are all states that are growing. Maybe with the exception of Wyoming, and they're—they're they're not using more water. Mm. Um, their upper basin water demands have actually stayed pretty static mm. over the last couple decades. Um, so, you know, it's—it's it's not necessarily that it's, the demands are that high. Okay. It's more that you have the supplies that are just getting decimated. I mean, snow, snowpack is less. Um, you're seeing circumstances like this year where the snowpack is actually pretty high, but we had super hot, dry conditions last fall. And so the projections for this year are not very good, even Hmm. though the snow snowpack is high, it's going to be running off into areas that are completely depleted um and so it's the runoff is not going to be nearly as good as it maybe once was um because you have these hot and dry conditions that are being sped up by climate change
0: yeah um well, I really wanted to get into a couple of those things. The snowpack is something, again, I see all over social media from you people out west and, and, see, and see, it, uh, see the stories about it. And, you know, that's basically, hey, this is a big source of the freshwater. This is what recharges all these streams and rivers. And, and the big Colorado River is the snow that builds up over the winter, melts in the spring, flows downhill. And so that's why the media, and government, and, and the public keep a close eye on that, right? They're like… Come on, snow. Yeah, it's not
1: just the ski industry that's worried about getting good snow. It's <laughs> um, it's farmers, it's municipalities, it's water managers throughout the basin. I mean, if you're you know in Las Vegas trying to you know secure water supplies, you're watching the snowfall in Wyoming and Colorado with a lot of attention, wow. um, be- because you know that that snow is eventually going to turn into your water supply. And if you have a string of bad snow years, you're going to need to make some changes in how you manage your water system in Las Vegas, Los Angeles, uh, Phoenix, Tucson. Um, And we've seen that response. I mean, you have, you know, Las Vegas has one of the most aggressive lawn buyback programs in the country um, starting to be adopted in some other Western cities too. Los Angeles, just increased the amount of money that it would pay its residents to pull out lawns from uh, residential backyards and front yards. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, a, an incredible amount of interest in snowpack because what happens in the Rocky Mountains flows down into some of these areas that are really dependent on on the Colorado river and on a secure water supply.
0: Yeah. And so let's talk about climate change. Cause you've mentioned it a number of times, rightfully so. And uh, <clears throat> again, I've, I've seen so many stories, but I'm just really curious, you know, what, what are the impacts that, that you're seeing out there that science is seeing out there that the everyday person is even seeing I and mean, be like, this is mm-hmm. not, this is not normal. What's, what's mm-hmm. the scene like, what, what about, it, what about in Colorado, just like where you are? Yeah, um,
1: definitely the science says we're getting a lessened snowpack. So that's one thing that I think you talk to most climate scientists. That's one thing that almost everyone can agree on, that the snow in the Rocky Mountains, the headwaters of the Colorado River is going to be less. Mm. Um, And just recently we had a study come out from scientists at the U.S. Geological Survey They are projecting that the flows in the Colorado River are going to be, are going to take a huge hit as things get warmer. It's not just, you know, and it happens on a few different levels. So, you have, if it gets warmer, more snow is going to fall as rain. And that is going to upend some of the ways that we manage water in the West. It's way easier to manage a long, slow runoff of snowpack than it is to manage. Uh, you know, these flash rain events. Um, It also, this study said that as snowpack declines, snow is white, it's brilliantly white. It reflects a lot of solar radiation. As the snowpack is lessened, we're actually gonna be absorbing more solar radiation that's gonna speed up evaporation. Mm. So we're gonna get less snow and then it's actually gonna disappear faster than it did before because it's not as reflective as it once was. Um, So those are just two two drivers that you're already seeing um, play out. And and the study from the USGS said that we already have warming it's already warming. We're already seeing the effects of climate change on the ground. It's not some for, sort of future, far off problem. Like th- this is being felt now, and it's going to be felt even stronger over the next couple decades. Mm.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, it's it's happening everywhere in different ways. The effects are already coming about. You know, I mean, I I live in Wilmington, North Carolina, here at the coast. We have we are hurricane prone. Um, we've had a couple in the past few years just wacky rainfall patterns too, you know, like much more intense rains, um, rather than kind of spread out. Um, we had the most rainfall ever here two years ago and then like half of that or less last year. So it's just kind of really the, the, uh, consistency of weather and climate is just off. And I remember, I think I saw this in one of your stories, right? Uh, climate whiplash, was a term that somebody used because you're just like bouncing all over the place.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can go from having a really great snowpack year, maybe even record breaking, to where you're seeing some localized flooding after a really high year, and then the very next year, you can go into this deep, deep drought. And that's really sort of some of these communities are just hanging on by a thread because you've got um, you've got that swing between really dry to really wet back to really dry. It's hard to keep your head on straight um, (laughs) as, as you're watching that happen.
0: Um,
1: and I think you really, you really get a sense of things. I, um, I stay up on, you know, all of the various reports and scientific reports that come out and the most recent national climate assessment, which is the you know top scientists in their field, all compiling data and information all throughout the country, various climate effects. And the section of that last report on the Southwest, its very first chapter was on water and water mm-hmm. security, water reliability, and how that was going to be a real existential threat for the entire region going forward. And a lot of that is tied to the Colorado river because that's the main water source for, um, the region. And so seeing that and having it, you know, front and center as, as an issue in that report is like, all right, climate change in the Southwest equals
0: water change. And
1: you know, that's, that's what we're spending a lot of time covering.
0: You mentioned, uh, some of the cities decoupling and that whole approach. And I know that, uh, You know, they are places where they're doing actual cleaning the wastewater and doing, you know, groundwater recharge, right? Like this is something done in Phoenix and and Orange County and uh, as a way to be like, well, let's diversify our water sources here. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm just uh, curious on... You know, are you seeing that more? Something that even smaller communities are looking at, smaller cities that might not have the resources that Phoenix has or that their utility has, but other places are like, we've got to, we got to clean this water, we got to recycle this water, we got to use it some other way.
1: Mm-hmm. You're, you're hearing more and more of that. Yeah. Some some municipalities have dipped their toe in. Um, in the idea of water recycling only to get backlash from their residents, the water users yeah. who are not used to the idea, D- you know, the whole toilet to tap. People are using that for a while yep. and like, that's just horrible branding. Like, don't <laughs> call it that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so you, you do hear more discussion about it. Um, you are hearing a lot more in um, coastal communities about desalination. And there are already some communities in California that have desalination plants, yeah. but the economics of it just haven't quite made sense yet. Yeah. Um, it's these so, plants. Yeah.
0: It's so energy intensive and so, ex- and it's so expensive. And, you, and you've got, also you have like the brine to deal with. And so there's a lot yeah. of issues. Absolutely.
1: So, a lot of communities are using that as maybe a supplemental or like an emergency mm. resource. Mm. Um, but really still, the focus is on the Colorado River and using those freshwater supplies. Um, and even in Phoenix, I mean, there's a lot of the the recharge is drawn from the Colorado River. Mm. So it really is this mm. this lifeline for the West. They're yeah. taking water from the river, putting it underground um, to to bring it back up someday.
0: Well, I know, uh, on the whole public, uh, perception of, of drinking recycled water. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the different efforts that's gone on in Colorado, Arizona, California with, uh, taking recycled water, having a brewery make beer with it, and then having like Mm -hmm. a public awareness event, uh, to kind of, you know, just get people having that conversation, get them over the stigma a little bit. It's been done a lot in Colorado. In Arizona, they actually have the two permanent facilities in Scottsdale and in Tucson where brewers can come get this water and use it commercially. So uh, there's... That's a fun project. <laughs> the, the
1: yeah, time there. anytime you can give people beer, yeah. um, it, and and have and be like, I'm learning and drinking beer at the same time. Like, I think people can get behind that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I got another bunch of things I just want to hit on. Uh, yeah. One thing that I saw in your on your web page, I think, is talking about how water can actually be a uniter. Right. With a lot of these negotiations and and water rights out west, it can be contentious and and people can kind of get into arguments over it. Right. But what are there some examples you can think of where where water has actually united people, united communities and, and taken, you know, been that type of force?
1: Absolutely. Um, you can find all sorts of examples of communities coming together to collaborate and work together and you know make sure that their interests are heard. Um, I think one good example that you're seeing right now is uh, tribal communities coming together around water. So the Colorado River Basin is home to more than two dozen tribal entities. Um, about 10 tribes own the majority of the water, water rights among those tribal entities. Um, and as negotiations sort of start up in this next round of the Colorado River's managing guidelines, um, tribes are coming together to make sure that their interests are heard. I think it's one of the most uncovered storylines in the basin right now is how tribes and tribal leaders are asserting their power and influence in the basin. Um, so that's something that's been playing out over uh, quite a few years, um, but is really sort of picking up speed and momentum. Um, and so you have, you know, all of these very disparate tribal entities that are coming together around this one issue of water. So that's yeah. just one example. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a that's a great one. Uh, I want to ask you a little uh, about three different stories I saw and things that I've, uh, I'm interested in, um, water rights out West people on the East don't, don't understand the way it works, right? That you actually have this, this right to water that, or not a right to water based on whatever it might be, the property. So again, this might be a complicated thing to explain, just like the, the, uh, drop contingency plan, but what's, what's the basic of how, you know, basics of how water rights work in the West? I saw you. I saw you. Like, did a profile on a deputy sheriff, right? Who's like actually knows the law and would have to, you know, maybe write tickets or whatever it might be.
1: Yeah, it's very complex. Um, but basically, the system in the West is based around this concept of prior appropriation. So, water is not tied to land like it is in a lot of Eastern water law, um, which is the more riparian. So, like, if you have land and it abuts a waterway you have the right to use that water. I'm probably oversimplifying, but that's the, yeah. the general sense in the West. That's not true. Water and land are not necessarily connected. And so if you um, have a, a water, right, which is basically like treated like a piece of property. Um, and it, you get a decree on that water, right? From a, water court, at least in Colorado, we have water courts. Mm. And um, on that decree, you have, most importantly, a date of when you first put that water to, quote, beneficial use. So that's the way that the, the phrasing is in the law. You have to put water to beneficial use. And it matters when you first started doing that. Because When water is scarce in a drought, the people who have used their water the longest, who have the oldest water rights, have the highest seniority. So they get their entire entitlement first, and the junior users, if there's not enough water to go around, are not going to get their water most okay. likely if if it's scarce enough um and really it's a system that was built in order to deal with that scarcity um it's not uncommon for western streams to go dry in certain parts of the year because of diversions or at least run extremely low um and a lot of that is due to prior appropriation mm-hmm. most streams at least in colorado are overappropriated, mm-hmm. meaning that there's more water on paper in the form of water rights than there is actually water in the stream. Mm, got it. And so, as people are diverting off of that, there's no, you know, in most cases, there's not water that's set aside just to flow in the river channel. Um, it's all being used by people. Huh. Um, yeah. And so. Yeah. And there's, you know, all kinds of intricacies in how water rights work. But that's sort of the general idea is that uh, is like, it matters when you use it. And the older water rights are the more senior
0: I think I've seen stuff about rain barrels even, right? These are the barrels that people will hook up to their house, to their drain pipe, to capture the water that lands on their roof and then use it in their garden or whatever. And isn't there even, hasn't there been stuff about you're not allowed to do that in certain Western states or communities or cities? Like you can't even have a rain barrel because that's that's water for others? Well, they've come around to it. The states have. So Colorado was one of the last holdouts for rain barrels
1: and those got... I think maybe 4 years ago, okay. um Colorado legalized very small, very, you know, uh, modest sized rain barrels and they were it took several years for that to pass and for a long time rain barrels or any sort of residential rain capture wasn't allowed because people thought it threatened that prior appropriation idea that if you didn't have a water right to capture water that you were stealing water from somebody who may have had a a water right for that downstream and that water would have eventually made its way into a stream and then you know the people who are capturing it don't have a right to divert it um but yeah it's just a strange concept that for so long um the rain that fell on your roof didn't even belong to you yeah Um,
0: yeah. (laughs) right Uh, um couple quick ones here. Uh, sports gambling. I saw a story that I think was at the city of Denver that pa- barely, barely passed a measure. Uh, the, the citizens voted on it to allow some sports gambling and then some funds from that would go toward water projects.
1: And this was actually the, the whole state of Colorado. Okay. So this was this was on the ballot that we had in November of last year, off, off your election. And it was set up so that Sports gambling would be legalized, and then the funds from that um, that measure, any revenue generated, would be set aside for what's known as the Colorado Water Plan, um, which came out in 2015. Huge, you know, lengthy document spelling out all of the state's various water priorities, spelling out um, where focus should be spent on everything from agricultural efficiency to municipal conservation to storage projects, to you know, kind of ecological health of rivers. And so those funds are, once sports gambling starts up here in a few months, are going to be set aside for funding projects in that Colorado water plan.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Another one uh, story that I've seen before, and I think bothers me, <laughs> is cloud seeding. And this gets to like the water rights and who's downstream because, you know, those clouds are headed east, right? And they, they should be making the way over other states and making their way to the east coast and wherever it might be and um so i'm kind of like man they seed these clouds to try to get it to snow or get it to rain right and it's mm-hmm. like well that might not be where nature intended that to happen so um i guess how much is cloud seeding happening is it still just experimental and what's are, are there people that think like me that are a little bit unsure if this is you know ethical (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're not alone in feeling that um and it's
1: beyond the realm of experimental in colorado and in the upper basin so earlier we were talking about that drought contingency plan Mm. um so in the upper basin one of the prongs of that plan for the upper basin was doubling down on cloud seeding and weather modification as a way to boost snowpack Mm. and so um, over the last couple of years, you've seen states ramp up what they're doing in the cloud seeding realm. And in some cases, they're actually receiving funding from downstream users. So the Southern Nevada Water Authority or the, you know, the water agency for the greater Los Angeles area is paying in some cases for cloud seeding in Colorado and Wyoming. Wow. Um, and the methods that they're using can vary. So sometimes it's these. Um, how do you even describe them like little towers that would be positioned on maybe a mountaintop or a mountainside, not huge, maybe like the size of a trash can and they would be filled with silver iodide, which is the, um, the agent that they use to um, allow new ice crystals to form. And so this is the kind of the like very low tech. (laughs) (laughs) Basically if it's about to snow, yeah, Some guy will go out and he'll flare this uh, silver iodide into the cloud. So it's literally a flame coming off, going up into the cloud with the silver iodide particles, and those are supposed to create new ice crystals. Okay. Uh, That's the very low tech. Yeah. There's the high tech, which is airplanes. Hmm. And so. Colorado and Wyoming have been doing some aerial cloud seeding over the last couple of years and they say it's much more successful because it can actually get inside the cloud. You're flying through the cloud um, Mm -hmm. to be spraying the silver iodide. Um, But you hear, I mean, it's, it's just like rife, right. Or ripe for conspiracy theories because I mean, you have the government flying airplanes spraying something in the air that's meant to like change the weather. Like you're just, you're asking for a situation where people are going to feel uneasy about this. And I, you know, I don't think that the state is going out and actively promoting that they're cloud seeding. They're not hiding it necessarily either. Um, but, I do think that it gets into the ethics of like what just because we can do something, should we do something yeah. um and is it right for us to go out and you know be spraying something into a cloud in order to change the weather and move precipitation where we want it? I think it gets yeah, it gets into tricky ethical territory
0: when you start doing that um and but like, the
1: states the states say it's worth it to. To go out and do this and create a little extra snowpack,
0: so nobody in like Kansas is complaining, huh? Saying like you're stealing our our rain. No lawsuits that
1: I've heard just yet, and that's sort of how I gauge how mad people are <laughs> as um, if they've filed a lawsuit. But as this continues, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to yeah. see you know farmers in eastern Colorado or western Nebraska, western Kansas, who if you get through a prolonged enough drought and you have cloud seeding that's ramping up in some places, not that those things are necessarily connected, but I think you would see lawyers and farmers who would be ready to make an argument that those things are connected.
0: Sure, sure.
1: And La- be ready to <laughs> negate it.
0: <laughs> last last topic I want to talk about, uh, kind of shifting gears here, is just about, uh, you know, kind of the state of water and environment journalism. Um, you know, we know what's happened with media outlets for the past 10, 15, 20 years, especially, you know, newspapers. And uh, also this... Uh, very disappointing attitude towards the media that's out there in a lot of, in a lot of corners. Um, You're involved, you know, you're at uh, NPR. Uh, I'm just a huge fan of media, huge fan of journalism, huge fan of NPR. Um, You're also involved with the Society of Environmental Journalists. Um, I've seen a lot of stories on water out of NPR, which is maybe really happy. It seems like they are um, investing in these kind of topics, water and environment stories. I've seen some other outlets, but I'm just kind of wondering for your take on, you know, the state of, of water and environmental journalism, especially out in the, you know, Western part of the country. What's it, what's it like working in that field? Um, you know, how supported does it seem? Yeah, all that. Mm-hmm. I feel
1: reasons for optimism and reasons for pessimism. Mm. Um, So you mentioned the Society of Environmental Journalists. I went to their last conference, which was held here in Colorado last fall, and there were tons of reporters there who were all doing really great work. Um, There were a couple panels where we had um, administration officials with the Trump administration, and the journalists in the crowd were not we're unflinching in their questions and, you know, we're, we're publishing really great stories, Uh, you know, seeing the breadth and depth of talent at that conference is like, oh man, environmental journalism, at least from this gauge is strong and looking really great. Um, I also it's, I understand why, more people don't cover water in the West hmm. because it's complicated. Hmm. It's really difficult to make um, make a story out of all of the different concepts that we've been talking about. Like the barrier to entry for even your average environmental journalist is difficult. Hmm. Like We've made these concepts and these systems so complicated that it's hard even for people who cover the environment to understand it enough to write about it.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, And then you have to take it another step and get the average person to care about this as well. Um, You know, you know, you hear a lot from people who live in this world of Western water people that if the tap turns on, then, you know, that's enough for most people. And if the if their water rates aren't too high, like, that's enough um, if you're not paying too much. Um, I would push back on that a little bit to say that at least our audience is really interested in water stories. It's mm-hmm. so one of those things that just in my own personal life, meeting people here, a lot of times I'll meet someone, I'll tell them what I do, and they'll say, Oh man, water in the West, like that's so important. I don't understand it at all. And wow. and like they want it, they want to, there's an appetite there. But again, the barrier to entry to that barrier to understanding is so high that that's really my goal is to sort of demystify water in the West mm. and make it so that people feel like, yes, I can understand this a little bit better by hearing this person's story or that person's story. Um, and so that's really my goal is to, to go out there and bridge that gap.
0: Yeah. I mean, when I've um, traveled the past couple of years and been in like, you know, taxis or Ubers in places like Denver, Phoenix, LA, San Francisco, whatever. Um, and the, what do you do? And water comes up from my end, you know, I've been really pleasantly surprised with the number of people that know like, oh, this is what we do here in Phoenix. Do you know, we take our water and put it back underground and, um, and, and, or talk about how their city's water efficiency has gone up and people are using less. And so it's been really, uh, positive for me to hear that coming from, from, you know, your quote, everyday people. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I think that's good. Um. I just hope we can we can keep it up. It seems like when it's so important, so fundamental, right? Like you have to have water to live. You have to have water for the economy to go to grow and or just to go that people would tune in more. But
1: Yeah, it feels like an existential issue yeah. I think for the west is you know, it's it, you hear it all the time where people maybe from the East Coast are like, "Why did we build these massive cities in the desert?" And why, you know, why do these places even exist? Whereas if you live there, I mean, you have to make the case. It's like, no, you know, we have we have to use our water wisely. We have to. You know we have to take it seriously as an issue because if we don't have it then we're not going to be able to live here
0: yeah and the, and those are spectacular places to live you know I mean i'm I'm from the east but and and I, I kind of have to have the ocean by me but man like the four corners area where you are northern New Mexico like all, all these places you know it, the mountains right outside Vegas red rocks and stuff it's yeah. just it's just beautiful places so I understand why people want to be there you know yeah oh yeah. Well, good. Well, Luke, I appreciate the time and all the perspective. I will keep following your stories, and then hopefully we'll catch up in the future. Great.
1: Thanks so much, Travis.
0: Yeah. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop ba 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 ba